in a constantly changing world. Today is as simple as it gets. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, a podcast to explore, experiment, and power up your leadership to make the difference to your business, your people, and your success. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we dig deep into global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. So welcome to another episode of the Leadership Enigma. And boy, oh boy, have I been looking forward to this particular episode. I am with the wonderful Steve Mahaley and Dr. Randall Pinkett. Gentlemen, say hello if you would, please. Hello. Greetings, greetings. greetings. Good to be here. Great uh, to now, be here. I, I'm looking at both of them on the video screen. I know you're not, but just so you know, so Steve Mahaley. Steve Mahaley has been a friend and a colleague and a co-conspirator with me for a number of years. Uh, and he's an education advocate and designer and experience inventor. Steve, I just love that. I really do. You'll have to explain that to everyone a little later on. Uh, uh, Randall, Dr. Randall Pinkett, again, thank you. Co-author of Black Faces in White Places and the CEO of BCT Partners. So firstly, can I just say to both of you, thank you for taking the time to be with me. And also thank you. This is such a pertinent and utterly relevant episode because we're going to talk about the seven myths of racial equity, which I know, Randall, you've done a video on as well. But before we get into the seven myths, can I just ask each of you just to kind of give a little bit of a, a context overview about the importance of this subject matter and the perspective that you have, kind of at helicopter level. So um, I don't know, Steve, would you like to begin? Or Randall, I, I don't mind. Who would like to begin? I'll let Steve Mahaley jump in. Okay. <laughs> yeah, go on, well, thanks. Steve. Yeah, thanks, Adam, for having us here. Um, I think that uh, for me, the the part I want to contribute here to the conversation is is what uh, what we think uh, we should be doing as uh, educators, as leaders, um, and uh, L&D professionals to create the experiences that build off the wisdom of people such as Dr. Randall Pankett and, and what he will be sharing around the seven myths of racial inequity. Um, and uh, that development of that experience for me is one uh, that's been long, long overdue. And thankfully, we have uh, a, a new set of technologies that are available to allow us to do that. Um, and those technologies are such that uh, we can, in, in my view, accelerate the insight that people can have and the uh, development of empathy for people that are uh, different from ourselves. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Thanks very much, Steve. We will also come back to that, that all important concept of empathy as well. So Randall, yes. Uh, this, this is a topic of paramount importance that's only been further elevated in 2020. Uh, we've seen uh, pandemics and protests across the globe. And while George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the response was seen and heard and felt in cities uh, uh, across our society. And it, 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 was, it was an outpouring yeah. uh, of, of, a, of a pent up frustration, uh, latent uh, and underlying and structural inequities uh, that have been long acknowledged, long recognized by some and long ignored and long underappreciated by others. So this topic of, of, of racial equity 
is one that when we look back on 2020, my hope, my hope is that from having these kinds of conversations as a result of the events of 2020, that we're not having the same conversations again. Yeah. Do you know, I, I heard, um, I think, I cannot remember where I heard this from, but someone said it's really important that this isn't a campaign that then has a finite time and stops, but has the inertia to become a real movement and a real global movement. Mm-hmm. Any, th- any thoughts on that, gents? It not, can't be a campaign, can't be just a moment in time has got to really drive sustainable change. You said it well, Adam. I mean, I'll, I'll just say it. I'll paraphrase your, your remarks. Uh, this cannot be a movement. It yep. has to be a, a movement. Uh, and it remains to be seen if it's a moment or a movement. Yep. Uh, we don't have the benefit yet of hindsight. It certainly feels like it is trending toward a movement. Uh, but we've seen other circumstances that, you know, the, the Me Too movement, yes. uh, you know, and, and other issues that have been elevated and then have, uh, I can't say faded away, but certainly faded. Yes. Uh, and so uh, I, I do see a lot happening as a continuation of the heightened awareness that was prompted by George Floyd's murder. It remains to be seen that those changes are going to be lasting and systemic. Okay. Now, Steve, you were going to say something. Yeah, I would just build on that to say that that we are, um, as Randall has put it, the, you know, we're in a place now where where um, all of this uh, historical inequities are are in our in the foreground, mm-hmm. um, we have an opportunity as leaders and developers of, um, of other people to do something about this. We need to respect, however, that changing long held patterns of belief and patterns of behavior takes time. This is where historically, I think we have fallen down as leaders and as uh, educators, uh, thinking that one-off solutions are the way to go. Um, so we really do need to look at um, yeah, and respect that everyone is at some point on a journey to really understand the experience of other people and the historical perspective and context that has created where we are today. And then to develop the skills, attitudes, aptitudes uh, to help us all uh, recognize bias and do something about that productively. Which is so relevant to your experience as kind of an immersive learning expert, Steve, which we're going to come on to because I know there are some critical lessons now for leaders and leadership all the way throughout this. So we're going to focus on the seven myths of, of racial equity. And uh, let's start with, with the first one, shall we? That it's better to remain silent rather than be judged or labeled. So, so Randall, let's start with um, that as the first myth. Yeah, so I have seen and been a part of so many uh, dialogues over the course of 2020. And as I've been having off the record, closed door conversations with with whites in particular, yes, uh, they have shared with me their fear of, of speaking out in this moment. And I've seen that play out in two ways. One is fear of saying the wrong thing, the dumb thing, the insensitive thing, and getting, and getting hammered or slammed or being yeah. called a racist or being labeled. Yes. And, 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 that, and that's, that's, that's real. I, I get that, especially in a cancel culture. Um, the other is shying away from speaking up because they want to see the voices of minorities be lifted up. And, and my response is, 
neither of those should be construed as uh, reasons to be silent. In, in other words, I can respect wanting other voices to be heard, but that doesn't mean that you, we silence your voice. We need all voices present and accountable and heard if we're going to get out of the mess we've created together. Yeah. So uh, I, I, my advice to them is, you know, I, I, I can appreciate and respect the fear. Um, and like any muscle, you don't go from five pounds to 100 pounds and that you're the most vocal person in the room on racial equity matters. But start with that one pound weight in a one-on-one -on -one conversation and build up that muscle to where you can mm. truly find your voice, but you gotta find your voice. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and Rand, like in your video that I watched, you said something which really resonated with me was, don't be the silent friend. Mm. And, and mm. that kind of takes me on to another point where, where Steve, I'll ask you, there's this differential between uh, non-racist and anti-racist. Now I had a wonderful conversation with someone you may know, I don't know, John Amici, who was the former mm. NBA player. I interviewed him for my book and he did a podcast as well. And he did an amazing video on white privilege, which we'll come on to later, and also non-racist and anti-racist. And I found that really powerful of that difference between, well, I mm. wouldn't do or say that, to don't be silent, mm. you've got to call it out, you've got to challenge it. Now, Steve, I know you've got a, you've got a view on this as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I would just um, one other framing for that yeah. uh, difference is to think about uh, being an upstander rather than a bystander. So this this idea of being non-racist, we we would all want to say that about ourselves. Um, but if we if we acknowledge that the fact that racism is happening, that systemic racism is real, then being a non-racist is not good enough. Right. You, you really should be an anti-racist, uh, a person who takes action in small ways, big ways, whatever ways are relevant and, and you know, accessible for, your, for you. But taking action is, is what it's all about. And from a leadership perspective, this comes down to, uh, and we, we can talk about this a little bit more later too, but this comes down to showing uh, some vulnerability uh, as we talked about, uh, as Randall mentioned about conversations with, with white people who are nervous about saying the wrong thing, uh, but showing a little vul vulnerability and a willingness to enter into these dialogues and conversations. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's not about uh, just being a bystander. We know that that is not going to help. Uh, we have to be upstanders. We have to be anti-racist if we're going to do something about this. And we, we talk, don't we, when we talk about leadership, leadership can come from anywhere within an organization. So this is the accountability and responsibility of everyone. Would, would you agree? Is, have I got that right, Randall? Really, this, is, this, is, this must be pervasive through society and through an organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is, uh, we are not meant to see through each other, but to see each other through. Wow. And, 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 and that speaks to... Yeah seeing people uh, and their whole selves, but also seeing the humanity that connects us to seeing the commonality of our uh, desires for a better society for our children and our children's children. And so I, I do believe that, we, you know, uh, Dr. King said that uh, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. So uh, that might be an, an American-centric right. <laughs> way of thinking about it, but it's, it's still a good metaphor that yes, no matter how we arrived in this world, we have a responsibility to make this a better place. Uh, it might sound altruistic, but I, I fundamentally believe that. We're all wow. in this together.
Yeah, no, I, cu- I couldn't agree more. I really couldn't. Well, well let, me, let me move on to the, the second myth, if I may, gentlemen. Uh, and we've touched on it very briefly, but it's, it's white privilege does not exist. So let's deal with the second myth. Steve Mahaley can lead on that one. Steve Mahaley oh can lead. Oh, my. All right. For, for the listeners to know, uh, I'm a 58-year-old white guy uh, from, from the South in the United States. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I have um, the great, great uh, privilege of having friends from, uh, uh, of all sorts, and uh, including uh, people of color, uh, black Americans, uh, international, uh, internationally, uh, friends from all different parts of the world. Um, that's been a great advantage to me in, in opening my eyes and my experience and my awareness and my uh, sensitivity to differential treatment of people, and 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 then reflecting back on my own experience growing up and and realizing that I never, for example, this is just one example, I never have had had to have a talk with my two sons about how to behave in the presence of police officers. And I don't know, I don't know any of my black American friends who, who have children who have not had to have that talk. I don't know any, every one of them has had to have that talk. So yeah. this is, uh, this is just one example of where white privilege shows up. And, 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 uh, and as white people in the, in the U S um, and as people generally, we tend to, we tend to um, encircle ourselves with people who are like us. It's just a natural, in so many ways, it's a natural human phenomenon to, to, you know, just be more comfortable with people who look like us initially, at least. Yeah. Um, and in that regard, it's easy to, um, it's, it's easy to move through the world as a white person and never have, have confronted that reality or dealt with that reality so my my offer and my my uh my my hope is that listeners if you are finding yourself in a particular bubble that you will do what you can to reach outside of your bubble and uh really listen and and discover what the experience is of other people you know when we're working with leaders chaps and and again this was from john amici i remember him saying this to me when when for the book he said interpersonal comfort trumps organizational change and that's one of the biggest challenges for many leaders who not through mischief may go and seek out people who look like them sound like them think like them and like the things that they do but randall let me come to you in relation to this second myth that white privilege does not exist because you used a wonderful example of a fish in the stream either swimming with or against the current so tell me a little bit more about about that it's it's a it's a good analogy to think about the dynamic of privilege is to think about a fish uh, swimming in a stream. Yeah. Uh, that for those so so uh, so I say if if you're white male Christian able-bodied and straight. Yes. Then you that. are quadrupling down on privilege. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Steve's <laughs> flexing his muscles right now. Right now. <laughs> right. Uh, and and as the fish in the stream. Uh, the stream is going in the same direction that you are. Not to say you're not working hard, not to say you don't have challenges, not to say that there aren't difficulties, but the stream is giving you a little extra push. Uh, If you flip any of those uh, identity or identifiers, you know, uh, then, you know, if you're you're a woman, if you're an ethnic minority, if you're LGBTQ, if you're non-Christian, the list goes on, then the stream is working against you. Yeah. 
you know, you're also working hard, you're also experiencing challenges, but you also have this stream that is inhibiting you in ways that you experience disadvantage while others are experiencing advantage. But here's the kicker, why it's such a good analogy, is that in either scenario, mm -hmm. oftentimes you're not even aware because yeah. you're just a fish in the water. All you know is water and a fish. But little did you know, if I were to kind of give you the ability to abstract your scenario, guess what? You're going with the stream and you're going against it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think you made the point, didn't you, very ably in your video, that there's, there's advantage and disadvantage inherently built into the system. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I think some people get worried, don't they? They think that then you have to attach mischief to it. Well, we don't have to attach mischief to it. It's just inherent in the system. That's right. It's part That's of the right. stream. Is that, is that a fair comment? Absolutely, and I'll add one more dimension. And you don't have to feel guilty if you, if you are advantaged. What I do say, though, is you should at least accept a responsibility and the opportunity to help others who are disadvantaged. So people say, oh, I feel guilty. I say, I don't feel guilty. Do something. <laughs> <laughs> it's that action over inaction game. Right. And I completely right. agree. Um, let, let me, and I, I'm always mindful of your time, gentlemen. So let me, let me move on to the third one. And, it, and it's this, the third myth. If I focus my company's efforts uh, specifically on black people, obviously, Randall, you're talking about the US, Steve, you're talking about the US, then it is to the exclusion of others. So talk to me about that third myth, chaps. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say this, and then Steve wants to, to jump in. Um, I'm a big, foul, big fan of, uh, of John Powell's work. And uh, John Powell talks about this idea of targeted universalism. Uh, a lot of people wrestle with, well, if I help blacks, am I excluding others? Am I now disadvantaging others? Is this a zero-sum game that more for black people is less for others? And then people feel threatened, and it gets down this very slippery slope. And I say it's not an either-or, it's an and. That targeted universalism says we can have a universal goal for creating an equitable society. But we can have targeted strategies for specific groups. Um, I give the example of uh, ramps for persons with disabilities. It's a targeted strategy to help persons with disabilities, yeah. but it helps everyone. It helps mothers and fathers with children. It helps cyclists. It helps kids. It helps everyone. Yeah. I mean, Steve, let's go over yeah. to you because obviously the U.S. has been your home all your life. And yeah. as you say, you're, you're in the South. We're at the mm -hmm. back end or the, the final moments of a presidential election. Mm -hmm. um, so give me some of your perspective too. Yeah, I, th I think just to build on, on, on this idea of focusing on one demographic or one dimension of diversity in some way limits your appreciation for others, that's just not the case. And, and there's some interesting neuroscience around this through research that's been done on this notion of embodiment. So, for example, in, in a virtual reality experience that we've created, that you can look down and see yourself as an African-American woman or you can yeah. see yourself as a woman. Or this is the product you know, you've just, created. Yeah, a different, a different gender, a different, yeah. you know, different, rank, different age, whatever. Um, and, and this is this, incredible stuff. I know I'm breaking mm, in there. I've, I've experienced it and, it, yeah. and it's, it, it's wonderful stuff. But, but carry yeah. on. But the cool thing about this is that uh, once one has an experience of embodiment, of actually feeling that one is in the body of a person that's quite different from them, um, they immediately develop an affinity and empathy for that character because you are that person. And the, the really interesting thing is that for many, many people, that character, uh, but mix of curiosity, affinity, and empathy gets then transferred 
over to other dimensions of diversity. So once you've had an experience of being in the body of someone, let's say, for me as a white man, as an African-American woman, I then emerge from that experience with a new appreciation of, of that person and that kind of person's, let's say, experience in the world. And then now I, I begin to question in a different and in a new way, what is the experience like for people with limited abilities? What's the experience like for, people, for, Latin, uh, for the Latinx community? What's the experience like for the LGBTQ plus? So this, this, is, this part of this idea is uh, once you open the door, once you open the door experientially for a person to, to really uh, get proximal, get close, get uh, get in the shoes of someone else, that 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 doorway opens to a whole host of possibilities in terms of appreciation uh, and interest in the experience of other people. And so, Randall, let me come on to this. I'm, I'm hoping that leaders from all over the world, we definitely get listeners from from all regions here, kind of best advice you'd give them if they're worried about this about what they should do in relation to their company's efforts regardless of of sector or level or geography i i would say uh ask yourself the question who is the le- who is the most oppressed within your organization I mean, look, look at the data do the assessment yeah. who's most underrepresented who is not found at the executive levels uh, who do we know are experiencing barriers because we just don't see them uh, in equal measure to other groups? That's where you need to focus your efforts because by tending to the least of among us, we're going to be helping all among us. It's like the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. You know, you know the canary in the coal mine tells us that there's trouble coming uh, before it, you know, humans experience that trouble. So focus on those canaries in your coal mine and you'll help everybody in the coal mine. Right. Thank you. Okay, so let me, let me move on to the fourth myth. Um, and that's the source of the problem is racist community policing. Uh, and chaps, as you know, I'm a 50 year old white dude who was a police officer uh, based in London. So I, I'm, I'm doubly intrigued in relation to this myth. The source of the problem is racist community policing. So, so some thoughts on that, gents. Right. And, 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 and the point here is that if you focus just on the racist police officer, the, you know, the guy who murdered George Floyd was Derek Chauvin. If I just focus on Derek Chauvin and say, you know, get rid of that dirty cop, like I've, I've missed the bigger picture. The, picture. the bigger picture is that Derek Chauvin is a product of a system. He was allowed to be there. Somebody else saw his attitudes and behaviors. There were systems and policies that perhaps enabled him to believe that while I'm being videotaped, I could care less. I'm going to continue with this behavior. So there's, there's a system that produces Derek Chauvin. But if we only focus on him, we miss the broader systemic institutional issues that produce him in the first place. The source. The source. Right. Not okay. the symptom. Yeah. That's right. The source, not the symptom. Because it's interesting, you know, some people have spoken to me about this. They know that I was a, a former police officer. I was proud to be a police officer. Uh, and and there are huge challenges right across the globe. And by the way, when, you know, I think I, pr- I probably say what uh, all police officers hopefully would say, that when they saw those events on TV, they were sick to their core in, in relation to what went on. And also the impact that that would then have on law enforcement personnel uh, across the United States. and across the world, really. Um, but it's interesting you make this point, as you say, well, the system, not the source. That's what we've got to try to focus on, that, that source element. Uh, Stevie, thoughts? 
Yeah, I just think that it's it's context and and that we could look at any number of influencing forces uh, in our lives as Americans or as, as citizens of the world, uh, from media, from um, you know our families, members, to our circles of friends, to what um, particular groups we belong to. Um, all of those things kind of conspire to give us a particular a particular view of the world, and 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 sometimes particular views of of groups of people. Uh, and so I'm really kind of sensitive now in, in my late years <laughs> to, yeah. to, to imagery to, and, and, and what kind of stories are being told about different people and, and how, the, how those stories get it kind of, you know, kind of seeded in our minds and, and kind of contribute to these unconscious biases that we have around, uh, around different groups of people. There's a great uh, TED talk by uh, Chimamanda Adichie around the danger of the single story, yeah. which I invite anyone uh, who's listening today to go check out next. Uh, but that danger of the single story is, is really relevant when we think about the experience of uh, black and brown people in this, in this country or the LGBTQ plus community or other historically excluded groups. Um, so we need to just, become more sensitive to the patterns uh, that exist in the world around us and, and those patterns that we kind of um, adhere to or um, are comfortable with and maybe breaking some of those. So let me share a story with you. I, obviously, I was a police officer in the 90s. And after the tragic murder of Stephen Lawrence, the Metropolitan Police were found to be institutionally racist. And I remember being in a squad room with about 25, 30 uniformed officers where the detective in charge said that we as an organization have to accept therefore that we have been found and we are institutionally racist. I found that quite odd as a 20 year old who, who in no way considers himself, nor do I now to be racist. But I remember an officer next to me put his hand up to say, does that include me too, who was a black officer? And so really the, the question I ask now is what does law enforcement absolutely need to do now? Round of ask you this, to really change the tide so that we've got humanity helping humanity? I think the answer is, is, is very comprehensive and, and widespread. I mean, part of it is transforming the culture of, of policing. Right. Uh, when we think about police and community being in partnership, uh, think about what's happened in Camden, New Jersey, where the police have really been intentional about outreach to the community and having police officers who live in the community. I mean, lots of these other, so I think part of that is transforming their culture. Part of it is also uh, the training that police officers undergo around escalation. I mean, what we saw in Philadelphia with Walter Wallace was that the only, the only item the police had was a gun. They didn't have a taser. They didn't have a stun gun. The only thing they had was a gun. I mean, you've tied their hands in that situation. So I think the training, uh, the resources, and when we get back to Steve's comments about bias, you know, uh, one of our colleagues, David Hunt, does training around these matters. But, yeah. you know, there, there's ways that we can mitigate bias by, say, looking at what's in their hand and not their hand. There's ways that we can mitigate bias by raising awareness of our biases so that we can there work towards exposure to the very differences that we have had we haven't had exposure to all these things have to happen in concert i think it's not one it's it's all the above and, and even more
And it's it's everyone's responsibility and accountability, isn't it, as well in this gentleman? This is not one group's, one person's responsibility. This is a collective. Would you agree? Mm, yes, yes. Um, I would just add that that I, I don't think, is, as a friend of mine says, no one is immune to bias. And uh, it's our responsibility to really examine how bias might have impacted ourselves uh, at a personal level, how we, how we see ourselves in the world. Um, and uh, uh, another black friend of mine tells a story about how he was followed. He felt like he was being followed by a guy in a hoodie, a person of color in a hoodie, and he got really freaked out about it. <laughs> you know, And it just turned out to be a kid going to the same store that he was going to or, or a different store. Uh, but he was having that reaction to a story that has been reinforced in the media of uh, young young people of color in hoodies, and he's a black man, and so so no one's immune to these kind of influences that uh, exist around us in the media and elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, and it's really our responsibility to pause for a second and and to examine those and uh, and, and uh, do something about them. Yeah, I think one of the things that is is so saddening in in many ways is that we've become so polarized. Uh, within country and, and across regions. And, and, and I think that's something that really stands out for me. Um, let, let's move on to myth number five, and that's that individuals are the problem. And I know in this myth, Randall, you also talk about the four dimensions of racism. Mm. So let, let, me, let me pass this one over to you initially. Yes. So similar to our conversation about community policing, you know, if we, if we, if we, re- if we only focus on individuals, like changing behavior, for example, yeah. which is not a bad thing to do, but we certainly change behavior. But if we only focus on changing individual behavior, there are three other layers uh, that we're, we're missing. Uh, one is, is, is the, the beliefs that people hold right. is, per, is personal racism. We have to change beliefs or at least certainly challenge people's beliefs. Whether we can change them remains to be seen. Second is interpersonal racism. That's our behavior. Okay. And that's where most people kind of jump right to without going deeper to the beliefs. So interpersonal is our behavior. Third is institutional, which are the policies and the programs and the culture of our institutions and how those policies and programs can create barriers. And then lastly is systemic, which is across institutions. Think about at the industry level or public policies that create additional barriers to creating equitable opportunity for all. So if we just say individuals are the problem, we miss all four of those dimensions, personal, interpersonal, institutional, and systemic. Right. Thank you. So it's just more complex, perhaps, at first glance. And interesting you say that because in my book, there was a simple premise for it, um, gents, and that was, as you believe, so you will behave and as you will behave, so you will perform. And I can see how that mirrors in some ways as you, as you talk through personal beliefs, interpersonal relational behaviors, and then institutional culture. So let me move across to you, Stevie, in relation to this fifth myth that individuals are the problem. Yeah, I, I think that, um, yeah, no, we've, we've got to look at uh, the different layers, as, as Randall pointed out. And there's a lot of good evidence around this. Um, you know, some of the, <laughs> one of the classic stories around, um, what was it, Randall? It was, uh, it was uh, uh, an orchestra in the 70s. And the study was, why are all the, or the question was, why are all the uh, performers uh, male? Why are, why are the only men, almost exclusively, who are performers in the orchestra and they, they implemented one simple 
uh, act of you know conducting blind auditions meaning they put up a screen so that so that the people judging couldn't see the performer and they didn't announce the performer's name and in fact if it was a woman she, she walked out with no heels on so they couldn't hear the you know detect any notion of of gender uh in the in the performer and guess what i think it was what was it randall i think it was 20 plus percent increase in the number of female performers immediately who were selected to be in the orchestra wow. so there's there's a there's there's a lot going on that we're unaware of often that influences how we think uh those beliefs as randall was saying and then the behaviors that we engage in our decision-making processes and organizational culture, and they roll up into the systemic level of what happens within our institutions in terms of policies and so on. So we, um, we can pick anywhere we want to start, um, but it often does start with you. I think that's a, that's a, a nice point to certainly to, to kind of wrap up that, that fifth myth. Uh, let me move on to the sixth myth, uh, gents, and that's a plan that supports black issues, but not black businesses is a good and complete plan. Randall, let me start our game with you for myth number six. Yes. After the murder of George Floyd, so many uh, corporations pledged dollars to uh, causes and issues that were all wonderful and laudable. Uh, But the problems that exist in communities are not just social, they're also economic. Yes. And so if we're not also committing dollars with black businesses in black communities to improve the economies, to provide jobs, to create opportunity. No measure of investment in social issues can succeed if the economics are ignored. And so the, 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 the myth that saying we're going to donate money to, you know, to charitable causes is going to somehow be comprehensive is in fact that it's a myth. It's a myth. Okay. Uh, it's almost like just triaging the problem, but not actually dealing with the problem, uh, as you say. Now, Stevie, I, I, I know you very well, and I know you do an enormous amount within the community that you live. So tell me a little bit about your thoughts on, on this myth number six. Well, I, I think that, um, you know, it comes down to this idea of justice um, and uh, that we need to have a, a lens of examining what kind of practices and policies are in place that, uh, that prevent people from um, having uh, having an equitable experience in life. There's so much to be said about that. I mean, I, I I'm thinking about um, my friends in the Latinx community here and undocumented um, uh, citizens, as I call them, uh, citizens of the U.S. who are undocumented, um, and the and the conspiring forces that just make it impossible for these people to have a normal life. Uh, and for example, just one example, yeah, yeah, North Carolina passed laws uh, a couple of years back to uh, kind of change the way that driver's licenses are distributed or, and granted, uh, it, eliminating the ability for anyone who has uh, foreign papers to use those papers as legal um, I, you know, ID papers. Right. Um, and so immediately, um, all of these um, uh, undocumented citizens uh, became illegal drivers. Now, the other, and then this rolls up institutionally to a systemic problem of, if you don't have a valid driver's license, you can't get car insurance. Now, mind you, think about this. We've got 
people who have grown up here, they have children here, they are taxpayers, they own houses, they own their vehicles, they, they, pay, um, they pay their taxes, they own businesses, yeah. they employ people, all of these things. They're, they're upstanding, absolutely upstanding citizens. And they have, to, um, they have to find a way to get someone else to buy car insurance for them or just take a risk every single day that they're going to get stopped by the police and they're going to be fined some enormous sum of money for not having a driver's license. And that's so this, still, still the case, Steve? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, you know, my wife and I went and picked up a friend's daughter from college the other day simply because we didn't want uh, her mom to, to have to drive across three counties to get her. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Let, let me deal with myth number seven, which resonates because boy oh boy i've probably said it myself uh, or, or certainly heard lots of people saying and that being colorblind is the gold standard where people say i just don't see color i just see the human so tell me a little bit about that randall it's a well-intentioned statement <laughs> it is. Uh, it's very well-intentioned <laughs> it's 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 just not very uh deeply reflective of reality. <laughs> at, at the end of the day, I don't know how you don't see my color. <laughs> no? and, and, and if you're talking to a woman, I don't know how you don't see her gender. I don't know how you don't see someone's nationality once they're, 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 uh, their accent is revealed. Like, how do you not see it? Because yeah. if we're honest, you, you, you can't help but see it or hear it right. or acknowledge it. The better question is, how do you respond once you acknowledge it and we want you to see color we want you to see nationality we want you to see gender we want you to see all these wonderful characteristics that make up the the uh the the, the spectrum and the potpourri and the celebration of human ex, of the human experience yeah. and still treat people fairly that's what we want yeah, i mean you want. randall yeah. you you used the phrase in the video which i i, I wrote down here which i quite like it says be color brave <laughs> yes be yes color brave be color brave yeah so yeah. stevie i think that's a good segue over to you be color yeah brave. no there's there's a guy named brian stevenson who uh, runs a uh, a group called Equ the equal justice initiative down in um, alabama and um he's a lawyer you should read his book oh, the, called just just <laughs> steve's book. pointing at me now randall you saw that right <laughs> i saw that i saw that his book the listeners his, can't see it i saw it yeah his, his book is called uh, just mercy yeah. And in that book, he points out four things that we should do. If we want to really kind of get out of our own uh, safety zone, let's say, and move beyond the laudable kind of fuzzy, uh, I'm colorblind or I'm non-racist to a point of really recognizing the differential treatment, the differential experience people have in this country and other countries as well, uh, then we need to do four things. And he says, one, get proximal to people that are different from you actually yeah. spend time with people that are different from you and i mean quality time that's not like you know sit down for five minutes i mean spend time with people secondly change the narratives um if you've got a story about kids in hoodies in your mind actively kind of interrupt that process in your own brain as you are walking about the world going into shops going into work whatever those stories are that you have about people that you feel coming into your mind stop that noise and, and, and invent, if you have to, invent a new story about that person right out of the gate. So changing narratives. The third thing he talks about is, is doing the uncomfortable thing. And that uncomfortable thing might, in fact, uh, be going uh, into a place where you are the minority. If you're a, you know, if you're a person like me, um, you know, get with your friends and go to um, 
I don't know, black employee resources group meeting or, you know, choose your, choose your adventure, but, but, but go get an adventure on where you're not the dominant uh, profile in the room. And then finally um, he talks about having hope. So at the end of the day, uh, we just have to keep, keep hoping uh, and keep working for a world where difference is appreciated and difference uh, contributes to the, to the beauty in the world and our own experience. That, that approximation point, uh, Steve, is, is really important because I come back, Emanuaka, uh, when uh, he met with uh, the, the police officers, said there is an approximate, there's an approximation issue there as well, that there's got to be a, a much closer connection between the police and the communities within which they operate. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think maybe that's in part the point that you make. Randall, I know also in, in myth number seven, you talk about building cultural competence. Mm-hmm. Yes. So help us understand uh, a little bit more about that, because culture, uh, you know, in the, in the leadership world, you know, we that old phrase of culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about culture competence. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll go back to some of the stuff that Steve shared earlier. You, yeah. the, uh, you know, the, the virtual reality solution that, that, that Steve pioneered and, and we partnered on is really geared toward exactly that, building that cultural competence. And uh, we define that as being comprised of four uh, components. Uh, cultural awareness, which is the most important of the four. Yeah. And that's awareness of your biases, your blind spots. Second is cultural knowledge and your understanding of different cultures and the dimensions upon which cultures differ. Uh, third is cultural skills. And these are things you can learn at a business school, but they don't call it uh, cultural competence. They call it global business. Right. You know, they're, okay. they're teaching you how to negotiate across cultures, how to communicate across cultures, how to resolve conflict across cultures. Um, and then lastly is the easiest of the four, uh, cultural encounters. Right. And that's actually where the VR is actually very powerful because it can yeah. give you these encounters with difference that you would have a difficult time otherwise uh, achieving or accomplishing. Uh, travel can do that. Lunches yeah. can do that. Movies can do that. But at the end of the day, it's the easiest thing to do because all that begs the question is, who are you interacting with? Yeah, which is extraordinary having experienced some of your your stuff, Steve, in relation to the VR capability of, I think you call it embodiment, which which is so important. Um, let me go on. Randall, I'm going to be a bit cheeky here now if I can, because I know this is the seven oh myths of racial equity. No, no, no. But there's a bonus myth, isn't there? Oh, boy. Here we That's, go. So there's here a bonus. So here I know we, we said, <laughs> so, so go. So Randall, tell us, what's the bonus myth? Absolutely. So the bonus myth is that discomfort is a bad thing. Right. Uh, Tell us that's about the, that. That's the bonus myth. And yeah. This this work around equity, you know, it gets messy. Uh, it, it 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 necessitates being uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, and people have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Like if like if you're if you're if you're seeking to find a place of comfort to navigate differences and navigate bias, you're not going to find it because discomfort and growth go hand in hand. You yeah. can't have one without the other. I, I've, do, coached, I've, I've coached af- athletes, including some of my kids. And I'm like, if you want to get better, you're going to, you're going to feel some pain. It's just part of the process. So let's explode that myth that com- that discomfort is bad. I say, no, see discomfort as good and lean into that discomfort. Cause that means you're growing. Steve. Yeah, no, I, 
completely agree with that. And I think this echoes some of what uh, Carol Dweck's research tells us about growth mindset. Yeah. You got you to find that edge. And that edge for us in, in, in this realm, in this, in this conversation, is about, is about just, just that, getting proximal to people that are different from you. Uh, as a leader, really demonstrating some vulnerability around that, um, saying, I, I, I now realize that there's a lot I don't know. Um, and when, once you, once you do that, once you demonstrate that in front of others, you make it okay for them to then say, yeah, there's a lot that I don't know because so much, so often we have this myth, this myth of leadership where, where a leader has to be the one who knows everything. Well, we know that that's not true. Right. Uh, so, so, uh, so there you go. I think it's about, uh, finding those, uh, finding those gaps in your knowledge through the cultural awareness efforts that you might undertake and then going and, sp- and finding some encounters that you can engage in where you can uh, up your game, so to speak. So chaps, let me ask you this question. How can listeners get in touch with you if they want to learn more, if they want to connect? So Steve, uh, best, best way for you, what would you say to connect with yeah, you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you can just, uh, Email us at steve at myredfern.com, M-Y-R-E-D-F-E-R-N.com. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, glad, again, as always, to be working very closely with uh, Dr. Randall Pinkett at BCT Partners. And, no and, and do check out some of the, the, the things that I know you're both working on because it is sensational. If you want to really learn, if you want to really understand, immerse yourself in some of the tools and techniques that the, the, the chaps are working on. Uh, Randall, so how can people potentially connect with you? Uh, yeah, let me echo Steve's comments. It's uh, been a pleasure and a joy to work with Steve Mahaley and, and, and his team at Red Fern. It's been a great journey. Uh, I, I'm, I'm on all forms social media, uh, at Randall Pinkett with one L. Uh, that's Facebook, that's Twitter, that's Instagram, that's YouTube, or you can just go to bctpartners.com and send us a message to learn more about what we're doing um, and how we're partnering with Red Fern. And, and Adam, it's been a pleasure uh, being on the podcast and being a part of the program. And thank you for inviting both of us to be a part of this conversation. No, yeah. my, Thanks, my pleasure. This has been, this has been, I haven't finished with you guys yet though, because I always finish <laughs> with a fun question. I'm going to choose a fun question. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I both, <laughs> I both want you to answer. So I'm going to ask you both the same question and first person who's ready to answer can answer. And it's this. What advice would you give your 21-year-old self? Now, you can't see what I'm seeing, ladies and gentlemen, but they, <laughs> they are thinking long and hard about this particular answer. So who's going first? I can, I can, uh, I can jump in. Go uh, on, Randall, because Steve does not look like he's ready for the answer yet. <laughs> um, and, and, and I'll actually offer up a quote uh, as, as the lesson. It comes from uh, Dr. Uh, Benjamin Mays, who was the president of Morehouse when a young Martin King was a student at Morehouse and mentored him uh, during his early years of, uh, of, of, of his collegiate experience. And uh, Dr. Dr. Mays is well known for saying that uh, it, it isn't a calamity to die with dreams unfulfilled, but it is a calamity not to dream. It is not a disaster or a disgrace not to reach for the stars, but it is a disgrace to have no stars to reach for. Not failure, but low aim is sin. And I would advise my younger self to not set low aim. Don't underestimate what you can do. I'm coming back, I'm coming to you from the future, yeah. into the past to tell you, <laughs> you can do more than perhaps you realize. So let's raise the bar 
um, at a okay. younger age so that we can achieve even higher heights. That's Randall, thank you. You've worried Steve now, I think, in relation yeah, to no, the answer, totally in the answer that he's got. But this Steve, come on, hit us with this it is, now. <laughs> this is going to be completely ineloquent. But, but here's the deal. I mean, for me, uh, as, as a 21-year-old, I would want to tell myself, um, A, yes, follow your heart, and B, uh, don't worry about not having the answer. It's as simple as that. Well, simple is um, when good. I think about myself when I was 21. So those two things, follow your heart and don't worry about not having the answer. Gentlemen, this has been a pleasure. It really has. I just want to thank you both for your time. And we will, we will connect again soon, I hope. Maybe, maybe. Yes. Post yes. a global pandemic, right? God willing. God willing. Yes, please, please. All right. You've been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Alan. Great to see you all. I'll take care. Join us again next week for more essential insights on the leadership enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or via our website, www.pca-global.com. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening.